Bright Hope for Tomorrow, says the title of our sermon, and yet our sermon text takes us to one of the most shadowy, hopeless days in human history with the violent death of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is because in the liturgical calendar of our worship, this is the final Sunday of the church year as we anticipate a new year and the first Sunday of Advent next week. And this final Sunday is marked as Christ the King Sunday. A Sunday when we are encouraged to remember Christ as the ruler of all, the King of kings and the Lord over life and even the most violent of deaths. Well, crucifixion is a hard place to notice that. It's a jarring place to try to find hope and promise for the future. Unless, of course, we remember what happens next. The women make their way to the tomb. They arrive. They peer into that cold, open space. They turn toward the mystery, and all of humanity is turning with them. Because it is not at all as they expected it to be. It is not at all as they feared that it would be. And I love the way that it's described in the Gospel of Mark. The mysterious figure turns to Mary and to the others, and he says, He is not here. He has gone out ahead of you to Galilee. That's where he's always going, isn't it? I've told you before how a good friend of mine and I have an Easter tradition. We've held it for many years now. Both of us are pastors, so you just have to bear that in mind as I tell you this odd tradition. And it is that at some point on Easter Sunday, we have this habit of calling one another before our respective services. It doesn't matter who calls. The call only lasts a few seconds, and the message is always the same. This year, he called me. It was early, and the annual message was simple. He's on the loose, my friend said. And then we both hang up. Now that's just some weird preacher talk, I know. It's a strange way to say Happy Easter or He is risen, but for me, it is hardly Easter Sunday without that phrase because that is the message. I find so much hope in those words outside the tomb. He's not here. He's out ahead of you. And that's because I know what you know, what we all know, so much of the weight of grief, the cold walls of uncertainty about what is ahead, the world where tombs stay closed and Rome wins just like they always do. You see, the story of Easter, of resurrection, it does not, in fact, begin with new life, but instead with long hours of trying to make sense of loss and unforgiving change. It begins with the haunting silence of that forgotten Saturday in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday where we spend so much of our lives. Don't forget the first ones to arrive at the empty tomb. They are also the last ones to leave the cross to witness and experience the suffering that it must have etched into them. Just look at their bodies as they walk there. They're moving slowly, their feet striking the path with that slow rhythm of grief. Just look at their hands. They are full 
of spices for a burial. They are going not because they expect a miracle. They are going there because they expect a funeral. And into such silence, into such uncertainty and mystery, that voice speaks to them, speaks to us. He is not to be found here among the tombs. He's not behind a stone. He is not among the cold walls. He's not even in the garden. He's gone out ahead of you. He's gone out to Galilee. Going out ahead, the Greek word is proago, which is used on occasion throughout Greek literature to describe how someone might proceed forth, burst forth from a prison, or in this case, from a tomb, and then call out to others to follow them. Proago. You can hear in it where we get the words progress or progress, or proactive, to go out ahead. This is what Jesus has always done. Like when he called out to so many of us, follow me, follow me out here beyond where you expected to go, out beyond all of the trades that you've practiced and the stories you've rehearsed. Follow me out here where I tell you about this kingdom, this place that I dream about that is not located in the centers of power, but out here, out beyond what is settled and familiar. Follow me out there onto the edge of things, and then you will become more than you knew you could be. He is not here. He's out there where he's always been. And they had seen it. They had seen the leper, the one feeling on the far margins of God's meaningful activity in the world, to whom Jesus says, hey, come out here with me and know that you will no longer need to squint from the edges of things. Come and find your life again. Or they had seen that funeral procession outside of town where a mother is mourning her only son, mourning all that has been lost. And Jesus said, can't you yet see beyond this? Look, your son, he is alive again. They had heard the stories of all of the surprise about how just when they thought they knew who to trust and who to suspect, ordering the roles just so. Jesus tells them this story of a Samaritan healer and says, can you yet imagine a world in which the enemy that you despise still has the capacity for salvation and redemption? The story of when we trudge down that prodigal road with so much shame weighing us down, rehearsing our apologies, imagining the stern God that we approach, and Jesus yet asks us to imagine something out beyond that, a love that meets us there before we can even get a word out. And then, even when they had denied him, even when they had turned from the love and the courage that they thought they had, Jesus seems to say, look, I've known you all along, and I've loved you even unto death, so come out here. Come away from this guilt. Come away from this shame. That's where you're going to find me. Out ahead. Out where he's always been. This message of the expansive, far-reaching, uncontained wideness of the power of God and the risen Christ who is always, always loose in this world and free from anything that would attempt to possess him or hold him or encase him. And if that's where Jesus is, well then that's where we are to follow him too. Peter Gomes once said, that the evidence of resurrection, the proof of Easter, it is not an empty tomb. 
but instead a reconfigured Easter people. People who are no longer afraid of the dark. People who dare to live by their affections and their loves and not by their fears. In other words, people like you and me who have taken the perspective of the hope and the possibilities that are always out ahead, out beyond us. It's not an empty tomb. It's not a messenger in dazzling robes that announces this new life to the world. We make this known here and now. It's as Father Basil Pennington, a Trappist monk, was once told by a teacher of Zen. They were at a retreat together, an interfaith retreat, and this teacher was rocking back and forth with glee and said to Father Pennington, I like Christianity, but I would not like Christianity nearly so much without the resurrection. So I want to see the resurrection in you. Show me. If Jesus has been raised, well then so we should live with that kind of bright hope, showing it to the world around us. If Jesus is somewhere out ahead, out beyond, walking with fullness and hope in the wideness of God's love and mercy, well then that's where we must be as a church too. And there is bright hope for us as a church. Oh, I know as well as you the challenges of today, the shifts that we are navigating, the narrative of scarcity that dominates so much of church life in our culture. We know that life is for so many less church-centered than it might have been before. We know that across traditional historic churches like ours, there are shifts in attendance in volunteer involvement, in giving patterns, and that we sometimes feel like we're trying to do more with less. A survey from the Public Religion Research Institute found that the majority of churchgoers in the United States express high levels of both anxiety and nostalgia. Nostalgia about the past and anxiety about the future. By strong majorities, the survey found, religious Americans, and particularly white Protestants, conservative and liberal alike, they believe that, quote, our best days are behind us, that the future of society is unknown. In particular, traditional historic congregations are found celebrating nostalgically the mythic good old days or fearing anxiously what a promised future might hold or if it will arrive at all. Well, maybe you relate to those feelings, but maybe amidst it, you can yet hear that word, that he is not here. He is out ahead of you. As we look to the year ahead, we as a congregation will be sharing in some deliberate and creative practices of vision and strategic thinking about our future, setting priorities, making plans, dreaming together, imagining together what can yet be. But as we do that, we have the choice of considering things as we've always known them and expected them to be. The patterns and ways and priorities that we've known, the walls that have always been there, the shadows of what we expect and what we fear. Or, we can follow the one who is already beyond us, who is in the wide open space of the creative possibilities that exist 
and life together as a community of faith and in following in the way revealed by Christ. I was able to do some of this throughout this year, especially because it included the gift of sabbatical. And throughout that sabbatical, in addition to focused time with my family and time for rest, there was also renewal and recreation as I was able to spend time engaging with churches and religious organizations that are navigating the challenges of the present with bright hope for the future ahead. Thriving congregations and organizations that are living out hope in creative ways. I think from this, I observed at least three things that I also envision as essential parts of the bright hope for our church in the season and the days that are ahead. First of all, I observed a radical, wide hospitality toward community. I saw thriving churches in places far less church-centered even than our culture that have come to understand their own health as inextricably tied to the health of the larger community. Seek the wholeness of the city, the prophet Jeremiah recounts, for in that health and in that wholeness of the whole community, there you will find your own. We know that. We have lived that and experienced that. I walked into the church building today, and my entrance happened to be timed with that of my friend and our building supervisor, Tyrone Smith. And as we walked in, I noticed some spots that were on the carpet in the uh, the, the hallway off the back parking lot, there was a, a steady trail every six feet or so. Someone's tracked in some mud, I thought. And Tyrone, ever watchful, noticed me looking at this. He said, oh, oh, that's soup. Because on Thursday, we at First Baptist Greensboro were host once again to the annual Feast of Caring. This is the signature primary annual fundraiser for Greensboro Urban Ministry, an essential organization that extends the love of God widely in this community to those in need. I heard from a previous director of Greensboro Urban Ministry years earlier that when they were looking for a space for this particular event, they asked several churches. They got hesitation from some. They got no from others, but he said to me, First Baptist immediately said yes. It became for me a statement of who we are, of our identity, something we can say to our community again and again, over and over. We said it at one point this spring. In fact, it was early in my sabbatical, the first week, when a local middle school discovered that due to a building issue that they had no space for their eighth grade graduation. And I heard about this, and I thought to myself, oh, oh, our sanctuary would be perfect for that. But no, I thought, I'm on sabbatical. I, I can't get involved in this. And then, wouldn't you know, the next day, a friend texted me out of the blue, oh my goodness, the graduation is going to be held at First Baptist. I can only assume that you were involved in that. Thank you. And my answer was, actually, I had nothing at all to do with that. Because I didn't have to. Because my voice is merely one among a church and a pastoral staff filled with people who say yes 
immediately, who think this way, who believe that our church is meant to say yes to the health and the wholeness of our community, that our bright hope for the future includes the awareness that this sanctuary, as much as with worshipers, is meant to be filled with middle schoolers at their eighth grade graduation. And that our carpet is meant to be marked with soup. And that our health is tied to the health of this community as we seek to be as hospitable as possible. Hospitality for community, which is tied to a second priority, a second opportunity, and that is, I think, to have clarity of identity. Now, what kind of church is First Baptist? Do you ever hear that? Or better yet, now what kind of a Baptist church is First Baptist? Amidst the breadth of possibilities, friends, we have to claim identity. We have to communicate it sharply and clearly for ourselves, especially in a broad religious landscape where we are distinct. We should be clear, ever clear about our commitments to justice, to equality. We should be adamant that when we say on our church sign, all are welcome, that we mean that this welcome, this acceptance, this affirmation, it extends to every one of God's children, regardless of race or gender or sexuality or socioeconomic status or background or physical ability. Let me be clear that in a world where certain people are targeted by marginalization, by bigotry, by violence, that a church has to be just as targeted, just as clear, just as adamant in its commitments to welcome and affirmation and safety. When I came to this church, a new member said to me recently, I experienced the embrace of God that I always believed existed but had not seen in a faith community before. This is what can happen when we are clear that the wideness of God's mercy is reflected in the wideness of the love and the acceptance of First Baptist, which ties us to a third priority, hospitality towards our community and clarity in our identity, and finally, strategy about our resources, about what has been entrusted to us, about what we have inherited from all of those who have come before us. Discovering ways that our resources can be used as a community good, and also as a way of thoughtfully and missionally sustaining the future of our church. I've told some of you before about my friend, Reverend Mark Elsden who's doing transformative work through the ministry known as Prez House, which is the Presbyterian Church on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. And the foundation for much of this work has been the development of an attainable, affordable housing complex on a little-used parking lot that was adjacent to their church building. A, parking, a, a, a housing complex that was built on this parking lot and financed with an impact investment from a network that they built the university had asked to purchase this parking lot at this sleepy little church about 10 years prior. 
But instead, the leaders of that church asked, well, how do you expect to use it? And they learned that the university had a housing shortage, that they were looking for ways to house students, that they planned to utilize that lot to meet those needs. And when the leadership of the church heard this, they wondered, well, could we ourselves work to develop some sort of housing that meets this need and perhaps secures a hopeful future for our congregation? And so they did this. And instead of receiving that initial sum, they developed this housing complex that includes students from their campus ministry. It includes a floor that's utilized by a recovery program called Next Step for students that are working through addiction as they work towards their degree. And then it includes plenty of floors where the church is able to provide attainable housing for students. And instead of a one-time sum for the sale of the property, this housing, which is so expansive in the ministry of this church, it now generates the annual income that is needed for the church's ministry and the campus ministry for over a decade now. I had the chance to interact with some of Mark's associates in London this summer. And in the course of that, learned the story of a young man that they call Peter, who was addicted to heroin. He had almost died from an overdose, in fact. His life had been derailed. He had hurt a lot of people that he loved. But he was back in school as a student. He was working hard to finish. And in partnership with this church, he developed a recovery plan. He received support from roommates. He received the resources of the ministry. And he began to go deeper into this journey of recovery. And he did eventually achieve success in school. He worked hard to restore and mend relationships. He graduated with a 3.5 GPA and a degree in computer engineering. Then he took a job at a respected company. He became a peer mentor in that Next Step program. He ran a marathon. And most of all, he stayed sober through it all. His life was transformed. It's an amazing story of the power of God, but perhaps the most remarkable thing about that story to me is that this transformation, this redemption, this, let's call it resurrection even, that it occurred in what was once an empty church parking lot. Church, there is bright hope for tomorrow. And so we come today to give our best to it, to express our faith, to indicate with our own commitments what we believe about the possibilities that are before us. And amidst all that is uncertain, amidst all that is unknown, amidst the cold walls of the tomb, amidst the blockade of a stone, amidst the aging buildings, amidst the old parking lots, we come because we hear that voice that says to us again this day, if you are looking for me, well, I will be out there. I will be out ahead of you.
And may we follow with faithfulness through Jesus Christ our Lord.